Welcome to the What the Data podcast with your hosts, Mitch and Leo. Hello, Lior. How's it going? Hey, Mitch. All good. I have an important question for you. Okay. Go I ahead. have a potato salad in the fridge. And I know that uh, as a good German, you will know. How long can it stay in the fridge before you need to throw it to the garbage? Oh, you, you don't have to throw it out ever. You can keep it for, for as long as you want to eat it. So if you're not going uh, to arrive to the next episode, it, uh, you know what happened to me, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... What are we talking today about? Um, yeah, I think I thought the, the thing that could be interesting to discuss today is just like, how do you even know something is wrong with your data? Because, I mean, just from looking at the numbers, you know, maybe your conversion rate went down, maybe your tracking is broken, uh, maybe it's a little bit of both. Um, so the question is, what do you do when you kind of see an anomaly? And what are your next steps, actually? I thought that would be fun to talk about because part of it is, of course, being good at collecting the data, but the other part is also like developing a sense of like how you can see if things are normal or if things are changing in an unhealthy way. You know, I, I, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, posting on LinkedIn uh, a message saying that if you're getting broken data that you need to QA on a daily basis, you did something completely wrong with your engineering team and you should go sit there with them and explain to them what they need to QA. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that surprisingly few companies that I know about are actually employing is that um, you can actually make certain automated sanity checks. So there are certain ratios that are always going to be roughly similar, right? Like your traffic mix doesn't change by like 70% in one day. Um, your conversion rate doesn't jump around in, in a certain... Um, only jumps around in a certain envelope. So essentially, you can actually just write scripts that look at your data sets and just say like, okay, we found a break in these relationships. Um, and then you can even quantify uh, by standard deviations how unlikely this break in the relationships is. So you can do a little bit of statistics to actually save yourself a lot of discussions and a lot of work. Um, in the end, it's very hard for you just using your naked eye to see if something is unusual or if something is just kind of like within a standard deviation or two. Let's face it, data is important, right? So you need to make decisions based on data. And the moment the data is wrong, you cannot make your decisions. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is something we learned only later in our life to, to actually QA the data and find out, okay, if there is something wrong, we can actually send a freaking email and actually initiate a QA system instead of actually sending data and making people very uh, untrustful towards us yeah yeah I, I know what you mean I, the problem is there's like all these kind of distinctions that are not super clear between what is the job of an analyst what is the job of a data engineer what is the job of uh, the bi analyst what is the job of a bi engineer um, and what is the job of the tracking engineer for example and so i think it's very easy for everyone to pass on responsibility especially if the organizations are bigger and bigger so like something that happened uh, to me a while ago was also that we had this one issue with the data collection. Um, in the end, it would turned out that there was an A-B test on the website that would just kind of remove certain tracking events um, just indirectly by just removing certain features from the website. Um, so 50% of all the people would just not be able to trigger the tracking event. So, of course, the number went down. Um, the point is that the, the uh, product teams that implemented the new A-B test, they didn't know that there was an essential event in there, in their new version that was missing. Um, 
the people who actually were in charge of doing the tracking, they didn't make a mistake because the event was counted. It just didn't didn't happen anymore, but it was counted properly if it happened. Um, and the people on the BI side, they didn't see any any concerns because their pipelines were working just fine. It was just a completely different place where um, the triggering of the event was was just kind of not happening anymore because the website had changed. Um, and then in the very end, it turned out to be a marketing person that would find out that these soft conversions were missing, or at least half of them. And by the time this has all been sorted out, you have probably lost like, I don't know, four or five weeks of data. Um, the marketing algorithms have been thrown off just because the soft conversions haven't been coming in. Um, and all these things could have been avoided if you had like one central kind of document that tells everyone involved which events have to come in consistently. Or better yet, what we said before, if you had an automated system that would just um, keep tabs on, on the, the ratios between these events. But here you still need to have some manual process, right? So the product guys will need still to stream into your pipeline that they've done in A-B testing. You won't be able to spot it by yourself. You would be able to spot that that something changed. And then you would probably know that you have to start looking and you wouldn't lose as much time and as much data. But of course, yeah, the problem still remains that there is like four or five people who could potentially be the reason for why this event is not coming in. Um, but at this, that's why, at the, on the other hand, I meant you, you also have to add this document where you make a list of events that should never, ever, ever be touched. Um, just so this way, every developer, every product person just knows, okay, these are soft conversions that are kind of being used to, to optimize the marketing channels. Um, and they can never be, uh, be, uh, removed from, from the, from the website. Yeah, but they never listen. They never listen. Let's face it. Come on. They, they... You're always putting this list and somehow it's always getting lost. Yeah, I mean, the, the one thing, of course, is that, you know, you start out with a, with a Google Sheet and then the first person stops looking at it, the next person stops looking at it, someone leaves the company, another person gets hired and then people forget about the entire document. That's one. Um, but the other interesting thing to me is like, engineers never forget to ping the back end, you know, to get new products in the catalog or to just kind of uh, register a conversion. Why would they forget to ping the tracking system to kind of do analytics? Um, it, it's, it's, it's another one of those cases that we talked about before that this topic just seems to be something that's inherently boring and disinteresting to a lot of, uh, to a lot of people working with it, which is why a company would never forget to build a front end. A company would never forget to build a back end. They would never forget to, uh, to, to set up a, a feed engine, for example, or to just other things that are important to get the product to work smoothly. Um, and thing, hire a UX engineer and UX researcher. Sorry. Yes, you have, you have UX researchers. You have uh, A/B tests. You have usability testing. Like, I don't think any part of the entire process ever gets overlooked as much as just tracking and counting the events that happen on the website. Um, it's 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 a strange kind of coincidence for me that this always ends up be the thing that people wouldn't look at so much. But again, it might be about the complicated kind of way that the stakeholders work with this. You know, it's, it's BI people who are just in charge of storing it. Then there's analysts who are just, just in charge of looking at it. Then there's the marketing people who are just in charge of using it. And I, I think a lot of companies are just missing some, some analytics function that is like above, the, above those teams. But I, I always was, so I'm always when I'm talking about this subject, I always say that Yes, tracking is boring and I wouldn't want everybody to get involved in it, but I actually think that there need to be like a cross-functional team that taking care of this stuff. They don't need to be dedicated, but at least there need to be somebody out there that knows exactly what product marketing, engineering, and data are doing 
So you can spot these things up, right? Because if the data is broken, it's broken. Or can you still use it? Yeah, I mean, one thing I, I think in the end, it's it's ownership. If it has to be a cross-functional team or something like this, it, I'm not I'm not quite sure. I guess it also depends on the on the organization. But the problem with tracking data is like if you don't collect it, then it's gone, and that's like the worst the worst part of it. You can have a lot of issues in your aggregation and your processing pipeline where you can re-aggregate the existing data, but everything you haven't collected when it happened is just kind of missing. Um, and in the even even five years from now, when someone is going to try to look at what is the correlation between soft conversions and uh, hard conversions, they are going to have spots in the data where this correlation breaks down just because it hasn't been collected. So even the third generation of new hires in your BI team and your analytics team is still going to be affected by these tracking outages. Um, so that's why you, you shouldn't lose any time the moment you spot something being off. If we're looking then on, on the data, yeah, so if we're looking at uh, how to figure out if something is wrong or not, what will be your go-to? So what will be the base setup to actually identify broken data? Mm. So that really also depends, again, on like um, on your setup in the company. So if you have a somewhat sophisticated uh, ETL process, then you can actually uh, do a little bit of math on your data. And if you're able to do this, you can run uh, certain statistical tests on, on these time series, on um, the ratios between two things. Um, if you can't, then I think it's still a somewhat manual process. Um, so, for example, you could set up your own dashboard and the dashboard is just kind of looking at the um, the time series of like, that's, as I said, you know, what the ratio between event A and event B. And then yeah. you can also plot, for example, the standard deviation over time. And then you can see whenever it kind of jumps out of the band, then you definitely know something is wrong. So you would be assisted by a dashboard, but you would still have to look at it. Of course, if you have the ability to put some Python code into your, into your data pipelines, um, you can automate this part completely. You know, I always, I always said that I see five KPIs that are the most important to, to check. First one is basically the installs. If they're dropping, yes, no. Second thing that I'm always saying that you need to check is the sessions. If they're dropping, yes, no. The third one for me is the spends. So always aggregated spends, just if it's dropping or not in, in, in average against the last seven days. Uh, are we dropping or not? If the trend is of dropping anyway, so it's fine. But if something is changing, then it's a good sign. And then I'm always trying to do some kind of a, a calculation that checking on a country level and on a campaign level even sometimes, or sorry, on a on a, a insult type, if it's an organic, paid, and non-paid, and check from there, what are the changes between them? Because I think that also, and this is something that the main things that I found that we have issues with, and then always you need to identify other parts that are relevant for your business. So revenues, for example, if revenues are dropping, so maybe you're not tracking something correctly, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a good common sense approach. It's it's just that I've also seen a few cases where people would just panic for no very good reason. So especially marketing spends, you know, sometimes your API connectors could be a little bit late or your platform could be delayed. Um, and then you would just kind of see a drop in spending or in, in a decrease in, in your cost per, per order or whatever you're looking at. Um, so it's important to also have a certain understanding of like when is the data supposed to be reliable. 
um, and and what what is the usual pattern with this, right? Um, so maybe you have a report you pull every Monday for your management meeting, and then you find out every Monday in your management meeting your marketing data is off. That's because like some of the automation pipelines is is just triggered at eleven in the morning, and your management meeting is at ten. <laughs> um, you know, stuff like this is something that you definitely need to keep in mind. But then, of course, it makes sense to have a common sense kind of view at the at the KPIs. Um, but yeah, when I talked about like identifying anomalies, that's more on the lower level of, of counting events and these things. And that's something that you would definitely want your your data engineers to do um, because they are usually a little bit better at, at um, fine, pinpointing these little things that, that, sh that could never be off. And also some of your analysts may be able to just kind of employ a little bit more statistics to finding out what is not what is out of the ordinary. Because, for example, some businesses have a, a heavy weekly seasonality. So they have a lot of conversions on Sundays and a very low number of conversions on Mondays. Um, and you would want someone who has a little bit of understanding what usually what this, this progression through time, what that usually looks like. Um, so that way he's able to kind of set the thresholds in a proper way. You know, you just reminded me some uh, story that I had. Uh, <laughs> I was working with with this analytics team and I discovered that every Monday morning there is a management meeting at 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and to be able to avoid the case that uh, the data is not ready on Monday morning, they done forecasting of their data on Thursday to forecast Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and to fill up the data. So mm -hmm. management team <laughs> never had the correct information on what happened during the weekend. They just had some estimation that some dude was doing. Mm -hmm. And one day I was asking the guy, I was like, how, how comfortable are you actually with your forecasting of this Friday to Sunday? And he said, it depends if it was a rainy day or not. <laughs> yeah i mean in general I, I i think a lot of the forecasting especially day to day or in weekly patterns i think you can do that reasonably well it's just the thing i completely don't like is if you mix prediction data and actual data um because that way it, it's very hard for the people on monday who have their management meeting to have to have a proper opinion on what happened because by definition the prediction data is based on another weekend that wasn't the one that happened right so the thing they wanted to talk on the Monday is the actual weekend and not the 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 predict, <laughs> predicted weekend that may or may not have happened a few days ago. Um, so that's that's what I don't like. I think for me it's very important to make a difference between predicted data and real data, and also to keep the 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 chance that some data changes retroactively at a minimum. But let me ask you that then. So. Because for me, so yeah, I'm dealing with data and mostly I was, I think that in the, the, the chemistry between the two of us was usually that you were the back. So you were doing the tracking and the databases mostly. And I was mostly on the front building the views and the, the, the visualization of it mm -hmm. when we, we at least worked together. Uh, how do you How do you see the dynamic between the two of us actually? Because I don't think that both of us were completely aware to the fact that we need to do QA mm -hmm. or that we both had some strategy actually to, to, to quality check our data before we deliver it, right? We, we didn't have something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, yeah, for, for our positions, I, I think it's, it's also just a, a matter of character, right? Like I've always been more interested with in kind of like building these things and not so much 
uh, interested in communicating it properly to certain different kinds of stakeholders. Um, because to be honest, you know, I, 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 it seems sometimes it just seems boring to me to explain stuff that I've already done. So I would rather just move on and do something else. Um, where at the same time, if someone is a better communicator, of course, it makes way more sense that that person would also be in charge of visualizations. Um, but the dynamic, of course, is that you can create errors on both sides. You know, the source data that would be coming into your Tableau dashboard could be wrong. But then again, your Tableau dashboard could also make mistakes on the aggregation um, because there are these typical things like, for example, a weekly unique user is not the same as a daily unique user. A monthly unique user is not the same as a daily unique user. Um, that's stuff that happens on the aggregation level that people get wrong a lot on, on when they build their Tableau dashboards. Um, at the same time, there may be some other aggregation on a different level that, that happened on the backend side of it. Um, so those are two different kinds of QA that have to be done and two different kinds of errors that you could make. And um, the other thing I think was also that we never had one holistic kind of QA process for both of our jobs. So, but I don't know. So today my view is actually the data engineer that collecting the data. So I, I, I differentiate it into three main uh, parts. There is the collection of the data, there is the processing of the data, and there is the visualization of the data. And then the processing and the collection of the data, I think that this is a very data engineering focused position. And then when we're talking about the visualization part, here they're coming several functions into the game, which are the data scientist, the analyst, which I sometimes I'm asking myself, why do we actually need to have this analyst sitting there uh, if not for the QA of the data? And then the third is the consumer of the data who needs to make sure that the dashboard is correct. But I, I do believe that the process of QAing the data should start with these guys and not from the stakeholders. It shouldn't arrive to a stakeholder that comes to you on a daily basis with fear in his eyes, telling you that if he suspects that the data is wrong. Yeah. Do, do you agree on that? Sure. I, I mean, the, the problem in these cases is just that like all the job profiles we've been describing, they are so non-standard and they are so different from organization to organization. Um, even the title of analyst is is not quite clear, you know, because a BI analyst is in a different company would be called a BI engineer. Um, a BI engineer at a different company would call it a data engineer. And um, a business analyst in one company would probably be called a, a, even a project manager in, in another company. Um, so there's some analysts who are actually, you know, you, using Python, Jupyter Notebooks and data science approaches. Then there's another analyst who really only analyzes PowerPoint slides. Um, so it's, it's, it's always very difficult for me to kind of like say, okay, this is the analyst profile. This is the engineer profile. Um, but sure, in the end, the point is that you would want to have these people to work in tandem and to kind of, um, fulfill these specific, these three specific three functions that you described, right? Collection, processing, and, um, making the data ready to consume. So can you actually use broken data at the end of the day? Do you think we can still trust the data if it's broken? Depends. So in some cases, I can actually judge if I have a good subsample or not a good subsample. Um, in those cases, there are always methods to kind of like triangulate to get to your real results, to kind of work out the biases in the data sets. Um, so as long as you know what is wrong with the data set, there's always way to, ways to correct for it if that's your profile. At the same time, a lot of BI organizations are really just focused on people counting stuff. 
and the problem is counting numbers that have not been measured correctly. There's no way you will ever get get around this. Are you a fan of using Excel to do QA of the data? In a way, yeah, it makes sense for me because essentially, um, for a lot of people who have just grown up and been trained on Excel for all of their life, this is the fastest way they are ever going to be able to to kind of flip a table or just comparing two numbers against each other. Um, so. Of course, for me personally, as a little bit more technically minded, I would prefer to do it programmatically. But at the same time, it's way more important to do QA at all than it is to do it programmatically. You know, you you now you you coming into my soft zone, right? Because I'm I'm a hater of Excel. <laughs> I don't believe in it actually. Mm. I think that it's causing more problems than it's actually solving. And I think that many times when stakeholders starting to use Excel, actually they're creating more broken data than when they would have used some internal tool that is based on Python or something like that. Or if the data engineer, the analyst would have actually saved them the time and do it themselves automatically in the pipeline. Sure. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I see your point and I agree to some degree. But as I said before, you know, if you have this one tool that is being used by a billion people out there and it has been used for 30 years at this point, and everyone has kind of agreed that this is the, the approach that they wanted to take. It's just always very hard for me to to just kind of say like, oh, I think all of this has to change at once. Because I think all the new people now coming out of universities have spent more time learning Python and R even at our business degrees. And they will have different profiles from the people who came out of their business schools maybe 10 years ago. And maybe this thing is going to change over time. It's just... I think someone tried to sell me Tableau as the Excel replacement a while ago. And then I realized, um, oh, crap, Tableau <laughs> just means that you have to have a fully kind of skilled analyst to make any visualization for these people. No, 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 no. Mitch, Mitch, Mitch. When I tried to sell you Tableau as the replacement for Excel, it was very clear how I sold it to you. I explained to you that it's very intuitive and people can build it themselves. They just need to train themselves. In building dashboards yeah, the right I, way. In my, in, my, in my practical experience, it just never it just <laughs> never happened. It never turned into the self-service solution where people would just leave you alone and just kind of build proper reports for themselves. Um, I've actually even seen the opposite. So, you know, we build dashboards and deliver them to the business stakeholders. And they only ever ask one question, which is, where's the download button? Because I want to import it to Excel. Um, so they didn't really care all that much about all those nice charts that were made because in the end, Putting stuff into an Excel sheet sheet just feels like work for a lot of people. It's just, you know, that that's just that just feels like it's supposed to be their job. So no matter which dashboard you give them, they're always going to click the export button. It's even gotten to a point where I would actually build like a, a predictive model uh, in Python, and then I would put the factors of the model into an Excel sheet, and then I would set it up in such a way where essentially the stakeholder can make his own predictions in the Excel sheet because I put all the factors in there um, and put all the formulas in there. Because for a lot of managers, if it's in Excel and you can copy paste the stuff around and transpose and make a sheet and all that, you know, all that Excel mouse clicking stuff, if they can't do it to a number, they just don't feel that number is real. So nowadays I'm even putting like predictive numerical models into Excel sheets so people can type in their own scenarios and, and get predictions out of it. That's a horrible thing to do, to be honest. Well, I mean, you can't just cross your arms and say like, well, screw you guys. The number is 14. If you don't believe in 14, then... <laughs> <laughs> but you promised me eight. 
<laughs> that's the point you know for somehow if 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 that 14 is in an excel sheet it just feels better to people i, I have no idea why so if we're wrapping this episode data will keep being broken yeah i think we will so there's this one like this one jump if you know if you go if you go two steps ahead since it is so easy statistically to find anomalies or relatively easy it's also easy to wrap it up into ai products so I think at some point or another, there's going to be more AI-focused uh, QA solutions for your data that you just kind of plug into your aggregation logic on the data side. I think it's still some time away, but in the end, that is probably a solution that kind of solves most of these issues relatively quickly. And even then, even if the collection is fine, then people would still have to copy-paste stuff around their Excel sheets. If my assumption is correct and these Excel sheets stay around for a generation or two, um, and that's the place where like inconsistencies always pop up, right? errors and copy-pasting, uh, missing comma in a formula, stuff like that. Um, but I think that the technically sophisticated data collection is probably going to get better in QA. So what is your takeaway from this episode? Um, I really think just making people aware of the fact that there should be a QA procedure in, in the way they handle their data is really, really important. Um, and it's not something that takes a ton of, of, of expensive tooling or that takes a high skill set. It's really just a matter of introducing this culture to your company. Stay pragmatic, I would say. That's why my takeaway. Yeah, definitely. All right. So it was nice talking to you again. Um, I hope there wasn't too much noise from my neighbors who are still working on their kitchen upstairs. They haven't finished yet. No, they still haven't. And Did I'm... you give them this uh, recipe for the tomatoes with the vodka? No, I haven't. But I, I think at least one of the two looks like he could use a, a vodka-based recipe. Uh, unfortunately, they don't have a kitchen to make it, right? <laughs> Talk to you some other time. Bye-bye. Yeah. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the What the Data podcast. 